Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is made possible by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And the Baker Street Journal, the leading publication of Sherlockian scholarship since 1946. Subscribe today at bakerstreetjournal.com. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 141. Baker Street Beat. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. Oh, Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the Baker Street Irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! And welcome once more to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. And I'm Burt Walder. How do you like that? How are you, Burt Walder? I think I'm I'm about a ten and a half shoe size. I think I'm just fine. Mine goes to eleven. Oh dear! Well, that's because you're west of me. <laughs> oh well. Speaking of uh, east and west and all things uh, director directional and temporal, it is spring finally. Hmm. Doesn't feel like it. No, it certainly doesn't feel like it. Today was a, a beautiful spring-like uh, low of 28 here. <laughs> my goodness. My goodness. Yeah, my vernal isn't equinoxed yet. <laughs> well, when they say, O tempora, O mores, I hope they don't mean we're getting mores of winter. <laughs> Michael Flanders said, O times, O daily mirror. That's what he said. That stood for her. That makes sense. That makes all the sense in the world. Well, welcome back to our show. We are here to interview yet another Sherlockian. We will get to that individual in just a moment. Meanwhile, we would like to remind you that stay tuned because at the end of the show, we have our regular feature, Canonical Couplets. And if you are a supporter of our show in any way, either via PayPal or Patreon, uh, and that can be uh, uh, as a one-time basis, it can be on a recurring basis, then you are eligible to play canonical couplets. Identify the story, and if you're the first one to get it in, you get a prize. So stay tuned for that. I am so embarrassed. You know, we've been doing this for such a long time, and mm-hmm. it was only just comparatively recently when I was looking at my notes and listening to some recent episodes that I discovered it isn't canonical cutlets at all. <laughs> and I have all of these breadcrumbs that I've just been saving up. Well, we, 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 will must, we must have a, a cutlet off. Yeah, well, the cutlets have gone off. Luckily, I found out, you know, before it got a little too pungent, but... Boy, am I embarrassed. Good Lord. Well, yes. keep that in mind for your next Sherlockian society meeting. <laughs> well, if you would like to qualify for that, then just get over to IHearOfSherlock.com. That's our website. You can find the show notes there for this program at iHose.co slash iHose141. All lowercase iHose.co slash iHose141. And there on that page, you'll find a big orange Patreon button. Over on the sidebar, you'll also see a PayPal button. Whatever works for you. Uh, feel free to go ahead and make a contribution. And while you're there, why don't you let us know what you think of the show or of us in general or of our mothers or spouses or whatever you'd like to tell us. You know, we're, we're open. Uh, you can send us an email, comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. You can leave a comment right there on the page. You can 
drop by social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are I Hear of Sherlock in all of those places. And I think there's a little telephone number you can use, too. Yes, 774-221-READ. It's 774-221-7323. We don't seem to get many calls anymore. Well, we need to offer a special prize for our next caller. If you're the third caller to 774-221-7323 and leave us a comment, you will receive... Reverse charges. (laughs) (laughs) And and a box of breadcrumbs. (laughs) You you will be the first to receive a canonical cutlet. <laughs> yes, you will. You we, will. And once you fry it up with a little olive oil at about 235 for six minutes on each side, see if you can oh. determine which story. <laughs> it's, oh, and no, and no, no, you know, we're not going to let you off easy by just everybody nominating the red circle. That's just too cheap. Well, you know, we, we might think about creating some sort of Sherlockian – um, food for order, you know, or a mail order service for uh, Sherlockian food. We talked about uh, Sherlock Holmes and cooking before. Mm. Um, you know, if if you wanted to go down this cutlet route, you could pack it in a in, in a plain cardboard box packed in rock salt and uh, <laughs> cover it with brown paper and twine and send it off to Croydon. I mean, you know, have yeah. have your own ear cutlets. That's a good idea, but you know, we would probably get so many customer complaints from people who ordered roast beef and then had it delivered the day after the next day, you know, it would be. Yeah. We can have fun with it though, you know? How about <laughs> yeah. uh, little, little sausages that look like the engineer's thumb? Ooh, what a great idea. Up. Yeah. Remember because his thumb was chopped off and left on the windowsill there and we pictured the house burning down and the thumb frying up there. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sensing a new Sherlock Holmes brand product. Yeah, hey Carlo, the uh, the Mastiff and the Copper Beaches, he was keen as mustard. <laughs> this is very good. We right. engineer's thumb things. with yeah. uh, Carlo Mastiff mustard. <laughs> oh well, enough of that. Well, well, I'm making myself hungry, but you know your your psyche and your soul and your brain must be hungering for things from our friends from. Wessex Press. March 30 is a special day in the ancient Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex when we celebrate the Sicilian Vespers, that memorable day in 1282 when the people of Palermo rebelled against their French overlords. And you thought Brexit was acrimonious. But you have more important things to think about than rebellion. You're curious about the architecture of Yoxley Old Place. You have questions about the problem of Thor Bridge. You wonder about Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. That's why you cherish your copy of Unmitigated Bleat, selected writings by famed Sherlockian Paul D. Herbert, and marvel that its 221 pages are a mere 1995. Friends, chilled is the air with fallen rain. Flood deep the river flows. A sullen gloom haunts heart and brain, and no light shows. While you wait for spring to arrive, reach for the pleasure only a volume from the Wessex Press can provide. Choose yours today. And there they are, those happy... Simple people looking forward to the summer and the harvest and all the wonderful things they get up to in the English countryside. Mm. It's it's a lovely time of the year to be in the English countryside. Mm. Well, we are not in the English countryside, but we are in your ear right now. And in our ears very soon is going to be a man by the name of Dan Andriaco. Dan is an author and a Sherlockian. You may have heard his name in these parts before as he has advertised some of his books here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Uh, He is the creator of the Sebastian uh, McCabe, Jeff Cody series. He is uh, a writer of a number of essays and Sherlockian pastiches, the most recent of which is available from our friends from Wessex Press. And all of his other books are available from MX Publishing. Uh, Dan is a 
fascinating individual and has some very eclectic tastes, and he's going to share those with us right now. Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. I'm a long-time listener and fan of the podcast. Oh, wow. Oh, long-time listener, first-time caller. We love those. <laughs> Call E. <laughs> Well, why don't we begin at the beginning and have you share with everyone uh, how you first ran into this guy known as Sherlock Holmes. I think I must have been about nine years old. An older boy in the neighborhood named Ralph Eppensteiner introduced me to Sherlock Holmes. And I always like to mention his name because he passed away quite young a few years ago, many years ago, in fact. And um, so he was an older boy in the neighborhood, and we would act out these stories. Imagine my surprise to find out later on he did not invent the story of the Speckled Band, that we were actually acting out stories that had been written. And I remember that, that in the home that he lived in, they had uh, bookcases on either side of the fireplace, and he had some old editions of Sherlock Holmes stories. And I realized later they, they were the A.L. Burt uh, reprint editions, so they weren't uh, in any way valuable, but they impressed me by how old they were. Hmm. And then uh, somewhere along the line, I cannot tell you the first Sherlock Holmes story that I read. I don't remember. But I do know the first Sherlock Holmes book I ever owned was that, that Whitman uh, sampling of stories from Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I think it has eight stories in it. And it has the illustration of the adventure of the Red-Headed League on the cover. And that's still my favorite Sherlock Holmes mystery story, although it's not my favorite Holmes story. And then uh, I know that at the public library of Cincinnati, which is a very good public library, I later re read Howard Haycraft's The Boys, Sherlock Holmes. And I don't know really how it happened, but somehow I got on very quickly into the higher criticism and read The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, and when was that? When when did that happen? Around the same time? Well, it must have been when I was maybe around 12, something wow. like that. Hmm. Somewhere around 1962 to 64. So you really found the related books um, pretty quickly. I don't remember in my own reading me, me doing that. I think I encountered Starrett's Private Life later. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I rather wish that I did remember how I got onto those other books. Uh, I, I think I must have read something that led me on to them, or it might have been something as simple as going to the card catalog at the public library and looking up Sherlock Holmes and finding these others. I found a lot of books that, that way in those days. I would get on the bus and go to the downtown main branch of the public library on a Saturday. Oh, that's wonderful memories. So I remember that's how I also encountered the uh, the the LP record of of uh, Basil Rathbone reading Sherlock Holmes. Oh, sure. Yeah, back in the and, day when you could go to the the library and go into their phonograph collection and sit down and put a pair of headphones on and listen as the turntable spun right there in front of you. That's exactly what I did. And it may have been that at that time, I may have never seen Basil Rathbone perform as Sherlock Holmes. Mm. I, do, I do know that it was, I was, I know I was at least 12, uh, because I know where we were living. I was at least 12 before I ever saw a Basil Rathbone movie on late night television. And I remember, I think I still have a piece of paper somewhere, where I wrote down the names of all of the movies as I saw them. But by that time, I had already read through uh, the can. Oh, I got my first, I remember I was in the seventh grade when I got my first uh, copy of uh, the Double Day Complete. And, uh, and so I, I was well read in Sherlock Holmes before I ever saw a Basil Rathbone movie. Huh. And what about the Baring Gould Annotated? You know, that's the, uh, of, of folks of this particular era, that was sort of a seismic event. You know, I, I got on to that later. I'm pretty sure that I read Baring Gould's Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street before I ever encountered the, the, uh, the annotated. In fact, I had probably joined uh, the Tankerville Club of Cincinnati by the time I got 
the the annotated because I remember I, w- I was married before I got the annotated and, uh, and it was well into Sherlock Holmes by that time wow you really need to get your priorities straight Dan <laughs> <laughs> well you know um, I still have some reservations about Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street because you know some of that stuff he just made up <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, the very the uh, nerve, the uh, nerve of that guy. <laughs> oh, so, so when did you actually discover that there were other people out there like you, Sherlockians, who uh, enjoyed more than just reading the stories? That they they had uh, entire meetings, or uh, you know, they they focused on scholarship around Sherlock Holmes. Well, as I said fairly early, you know, I, I think the uh, Starrett's The Private Life led me on to some of the Edgar Smith books. I uh, probably read Profile by Gaslight. I knew about the Baker Street Irregulars, but it was it was very remote. Uh, I had a, a good friend who is still my very good friend uh, named Steve Winter. I met in the seventh grade, and then, uh, you know, we shared our interest in Sherlock Holmes, and when the two of us were in college uh, with a third friend. We would call ourselves the three students. And imagine this, college kids <laughs> in the 70s doing this, but we would we'd get together and read Sherlock Holmes stories out loud, taking parts. Hmm. Uh, there may have been some imperial toque involved or, or some, some uh, other sort of beverage, but uh, uh, that, that was my only experience until... Uh, 1981, I joined the Tankerville Club, the Cincinnati uh, Sherlock Holmes Scion Society, which was founded by Paul Herbert, who just passed away a few years ago. I had met Paul at a non-credit class in Sherlock Holmes at Xavier University. He was a guest speaker, and I was a good friend of, of uh, the teacher, uh, uh, Father Lee Benish, who since passed away. And uh, so I remember Father Benish brought Paul and I together one time uh, for lunch at the Jesuit residence. And, uh, well, it was kind of on from there. I, I joined the Tankerville Club, and like I said, in 1981. I've been an active member since. And since then, I've joined very many other groups. But, you know, other than going to the Dayton Symposium, I never really ventured outside of, of Cincinnati for Sherlockian events until uh, my first book was published, my first Sherlockian book in 2011, and then I went to the uh, uh, Scintillation of Scions and Gillette de Brett, and, you know, it was just on from there. And my wife and I both enjoyed going to all kinds of Scion meetings. That's wonderful. So... And in the last year, for the first time, we went to Baker Street Regulars Weekend, Baker Street Regulars and Friends Weekend, and we did that again this year. And uh, I, I hope to keep doing that as long as my legs will support me. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot or to... Or a wheelchair, even. Yeah, well, that, that's been done. That's been done. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. So why don't, we, why don't we just circle back? Because you mentioned Paul Herbert, and we mentioned his name on... Uh, a recent episode because Paul just passed away a few weeks ago. And um, he was, I, I think in the larger Sherlockian circles, he was more of a quiet presence. Uh, certainly he was well-written, a uh, number of books and uh, essays out there under Paul's name. But uh, in your uh, home area of Cincinnati, he was a, a driving force. Well, why don't you talk about his involvement with the Tankerville Club and what you witnessed as a as a member there. Well, Paul founded the Tankerville Club 41 years ago, and he was the official secretary and everything else. <laughs> it's just the nature of the way he established the club. We don't have any officers, and, uh, and so it really all hinged on him. But, uh, you know, it, it, we've seen so much in this period because we went through the the surge in interest in Sherlock Holmes after the uh, uh, the seven percent solution, and then you know that died off, and then we'd gone through the the BBC Sherlock period and the Morton Downey Jr. and Elementary and all that, 
And and so we've seen the whole thing wax and wane, and through all those years, uh, the Tankerville Club and Paul was a was a steady presence. And what what was it like uh, being around Paul at some of these meetings? Paul had a great wit, and there was an extra poignancy to that as he made his comments, uh, very sly comments during the meetings, uh, because he'd, he'd been through quite a number of uh, very major uh, medical issues, and uh, chief among them, or at least first among them, uh, was a stroke somewhere around 15 years or so ago. And it greatly affected his speech, but it did not affect his mind. Mm. And I think that all of us struck us that, uh, that that Paul was still there, and that that in a lot of ways Sherlock Holmes is what kept him going through mm. many many other medical challenges that he had. Yeah, I remember he was very. I didn't. Um, I may have met him at at a meeting at one point, but it's not somebody that I knew well at all. But I remember that he. He was very active. I mean, he'd been, he traveled to England and I think he went to one of the Switzerland events. He was, and he was an educator, wasn't he? He was a teacher? Yeah, he was a high school history teacher. Yeah. And Perfect. he was at the, uh, he was at the Baker Street Irregulars and Friends weekend in January. He had just had another stroke in December, but he yeah. was determined that he was going to go to New York. Wow. And what was the, and, and passed away the next month. Yeah. And what's the community like, the Tankerville Club? Is it still going? Yeah. I imagine it's still going. Well, it is still going. Uh, my wife, Ann, and I had an anniversary party for the Tankerville Club at our home last April. And uh, this April, on the 14th, we're going to have a another meeting that will be a, a remembrance of Paul to a large degree and also an opportunity for members to kind of assess and see where they want the Tankerville Club to go from here. Uh, Paul's wife, uh, Barbara, is very insistent that that uh, Paul would have wanted the Tankerville Club to continue, and we all know that that's the case. Yeah, yeah no doubt. The Tankerville Club did not does not meet as often as some other groups it's probably four times a year and then there have been uh, occasional parties as well for many years we, my wife and i hosted a, a birthday party in january at our home uh, another couple hosted a summer party uh, but in between we would get together about four times a year uh, dinners uh, our friday night and it would involve of course a, a designated story uh, there would be a quiz and a discussion, and Paul would lead the discussion. And Paul would create the quiz. It was not the sort of uh, group where people would take turns uh, creating the quiz or the winner would, would do next uh, session's quiz. He did the quizzes, and they were absolutely insane. They were the, the hardest quizzes that, that anybody could ever dream of, of concocting. And he was all—he was a very hard grader. <laughs> he, would, he would never, he would never budge an inch. If you had a disagreement with Paul about what the right answer should be, you lost because your answer was wrong, even if it was right. Wow, that was part of Paul's charm. I'm glad I didn't have him as a teacher. <laughs> well, I think we all wondered what the heck he would have been like as a teacher. What were, what were his, what were his authentic tests like? Right. Right. He, Paul even had a, uh, a Sherlock Holmes quiz for his wedding program when he married Barbara. Uh, they had met in that, that uh, Sherlock Holmes class, the, the, the non-credit mystery class at Xavier University uh, that Paul taught, talked at one time. And, uh, and so uh, Barbara was a Sherlockian in her own right, and so when they married, Paul prepared a quiz that uh, dealt with uh, weddings in the canon. <laughs> and this was part of the, the program for the wedding. Well, it's a good thing Barbara passed it, or else she wouldn't have been able to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would, have been, that would have been very funny if during the, semi, during the uh, ceremony, rather than the uh, officiant, 
saying uh, if anyone here present now has objections to though if instead of that he would have said whose was it that would have been very appropriate <laughs> oh. I don't know why he didn't think of that there shall be no monthly meeting there shall uh, be no monthly meeting so so Dan when so when with all of this background and interest and community when um, when did you first turn to writing particularly writing things uh, of a Sherlockian nature. You know, I always wanted to be a writer, and the only way I could figure out that you could make money at it was by being a journalist. Hmm. So for the first more than half of my working career, I was a journalist. I was a, a business reporter and then the business editor of the Cincinnati Post, uh, an afternoon daily newspaper. I left uh, the paper in 1997, and it immediately collapsed as a result 10 years later. (laughs) (laughs) So I've I've always been a writer, and uh, that, of course, if if what you want to do is to write, and if you read a lot, you tend to write about what you read. So, you know, here and there, I found out about various journals of, of Sherlockiana, you know, and I would submit things. And then I realized somewhere along the line that I, that I had done a fair amount of this stuff. And I decided to put it together just maybe so that someday my grandkid could look at it or whatever. And I wanted to self-publish it. And uh, I completely failed at self-publishing. I couldn't figure out how to do it. But uh, our friends, uh, Carolyn and Joel Center, told us about this guy in England who had a small publishing company called MX Publishing. And uh, I sent it off to them, and so they, they published this as uh, Baker Street Beat. And I tried to write in there, you know, what the, what the background was on, on, on each of these pieces. And I haven't looked at that lately, so I don't know what the earliest was, but I was probably writing certainly in the 80s and 90s. Hmm. So, so tell us about Baker Street Beat, because that's, that's the title of your website. It's also the title of your first Sherlockian book, but if... Uh, listeners were to buy a copy of Baker Street Beat, what would they find inside? It's kind of a grab bag. Uh, It's mostly essays, but there's also two radio plays about Sherlock Holmes. And there's a pastiche that I wrote, The Perilous Persecution of John Vincent Harden. And... uh, I guess that's it. So, well, that that's interesting. Two radio plays. That that early Rathbone uh, LP must have kind of set you off, huh? Yeah. In uh, in the 1990s, here in Cincinnati, there was uh, a project called the Radio Repertory Company, and the uh, the uh, uh, the brains behind this uh, had this idea of, of producing some original uh, programming. And they did, uh, with some support from the Ohio Council for the Arts. To, uh, to, to we actually got paid for writing scripts, and uh, I wrote one uh, called "The Wrong Cab," which was based on this idea that uh, a modern-day private eye goes to a meeting of a Sherlock Holmes Science Society, is extremely cynical about the whole thing, gets into a taxi cab. A fog appears, and the next thing he knows, he's beside, standing beside Sherlock Holmes, and he's in Dr. Watson's body. And they go on to, to solve uh, murder in the uh, wax museum, hmm. Madame Tussauds. Well, it sounds like fun. Has it ever been performed? It was, well, it was performed, and it was broadcast on NPR back in the 90s. Really? Yeah, I know that because a, a, my wife's cousin heard it on the radio in Georgia. <laughs> well, that's a yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I wasn't clear about that. I mean, we, not only did they get funding for the scripts, but they actually brought in a, a professional cast to do this. We have a very good uh, regional theater here called Playhouse in the Park. In fact, Henry Winkler told me that was his first professional acting gig was at Playhouse in the Park. So I think the actors for this production were most productions were mostly from uh, Playhouse in the Park. And then after they had a I don't know how many there were in the series, but after they had them all done, they brought in George Clooney's father, Nick Clooney, who's a you know well-known in in the Cincinnati area sure. 
to uh, to do a, a, an introduction that was the same for all of the the, uh, the radio plays. That's a hoot. It is. I uh, and I hadn't thought about Baker Street Beat in a while, the book, because it's been a while ago. But interestingly, a uh, it, down in uh, Winchester, Kentucky. This is a wonderful thing. An assisted living center. The director of the assisted living center has a Sherlock Holmes reading group. And about seven or eight people in this group come together once a month to talk about a Sherlock Holmes story. So uh, he contacted me. We got each a copy of Baker Street Beat, and they read my uh, uh, my pastiche. And then I went down there and talked to them about it. And it was a wonderful time. Hmm. So you've done some other books. You've written some other books that are non-Sherlockian but have a um, – well, let's say they have a Sherlockian inspiration uh, behind them. And, and I'm thinking in particular of the Sebastian McCabe, Jeff Cody series, which you have advertised here on our show before. Uh, what's yeah. that all about? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I want to tell you how, how they came to be uh, in print, because that's kind of an interesting story, I think, too. I had uh, originally written the first two Sebastian McCabe, Jeff Cody books back in the 90s. And I've always been better at writing fiction than I have been at uh, having the persistence necessary to find a publisher. I'm just not that person that can go through 100 publishers, you know, and then hit 101 who wants to publish the book. So I had these two books, but uh, I'd completely forgotten about them until uh, Steve Mx, the publisher of Baker Street, told me that he wanted me to do a, a blog. So I thought, well, you know, I, I could do a blog. I've been collecting material on Sherlock Holmes for 40 years. Let me go and, and see what I have in storage. <laughs> in storage, I found these two books, which I'd completely forgotten about. And the first of them was called There's No Police Like Holmes. And it was about, initially... Uh, the theft of uh, some uh, important items in a Sherlock Holmes collection uh, on a college campus. And the sleuth, Sebastian McCabe, is a Sherlockian. So I tinkered with that quite a bit. I mean, I, I think I've matured a lot as a writer, so I made a lot of changes in it and also set it up so that it could be the first of a series rather than the second. And uh, so MX published that, and then I, I redid the second book to give it a Sherlock Holmes cast, and then on from there, from the third book, the 19, I mean, the uh, 1895 murder on, they've all been uh, completely new. And I think, you know, they, they, I'm hoping that they are stories that would appeal to a Sherlockian, because there's always multiple Sherlock Holmes references. Often, something Sherlockian helps the detective to solve the crime. And if not that, there, there are at least multiple quotes and references to stories and things like that. Yeah, what a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It's, it's a, um, I don't know, a second life for me in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, it, it sounds like, you know, as a, as a writer for your profession, it's something you, uh, even though you're retired, you haven't really been able to... Uh, separate yourself from it. And that's probably something that'll stay with you for your entire life, I would imagine. Well, I certainly hope so. I, I think that, uh, I think the series, I hope the series lasts as long as I do. The uh, part of the setup is that the, the stories are narrated by Sebastian McCabe's brother-in-law and best friend, Jeff Cody. And I used to say that Jeff Cody is a comic exaggeration of my more neurotic tendencies <laughs> until my wife heard me say that and she said, oh no, you're just like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's always encouraging. So I, so I very it? much yes. enjoy the interplay. Anybody who's ever wrote, written fiction knows that your characters kind of get away from you. And I think people look at me a little bit strangely when I'd say, well, Jeff said, or Jeff wrote, because when I'm writing, they're written in the first person, just like the, the canon. And, you know, I don't always know what's going to come out. I, you know, I, I'm a plotter, uh, so I do a, a complete outline chapter by chapter, but it still surprises me some of the things that Jeff says. And he seems to have caught on as a character. My, my first book was in the novel series was subtitled Introducing Sebastian McCabe, and I thought each one was going to say, 
a Sebastian McCabe novel. But people like the Jeff Cody character so much that they now say a Jeff, a Sebastian McCabe Jeff Cody mystery. That's that's got to be the ultimate compliment. It is a lot. Well, again, that gets back to the idea that it's a lot of fun. People tell me that they enjoy reading the books, and they're set in a an imaginary small town. Uh, that's just like every other small town I visited to a certain degree, and yet it has its own peculiarities. And another great compliment that people have paid me is that they say that they feel kind of like they're coming home. And they go back to the series because they're familiar characters that show up in each one. So your latest book, which we've talked about here on the show, is uh, House of the Doomed, a Sherlock Holmes yeah. adventure. Now. Mm-hmm. Couple, couple things about that. It's, it's returned you to your, uh, your initial, uh, you know, uh, mystery writing with Sherlock Holmes at the center of it. Um, but this mm-hmm. one, uh, also goes through, um, Wessex Press, Gas Gene Books. Yeah. So what's, what's well, different about this that, one? That gets back, well, that gets back to the origin of the book, you know, uh, my, my, uh, I'm very grateful to my other publisher, uh, uh, MX Publishing, and MX is just a, a dream to work with, and they publish a lot of Sherlock Holmes pastiches, novels. But the re- reason that I wrote House of the Doomed is that I was walking along downtown Indianapolis one day with Steve Doyle and Mark Gagan, the co-owners of Wessex Press, it was part of the, the annual field trip that the illustrious clients do every year. I'm a member of the illustrious clients of Indianapolis, as well as other science societies. And uh, Steve said to me, so when are you going to write a Sherlock Holmes pastiche novel for us? And I think I said something like, when are you going to ask me? <laughs> and then he asked me. So uh, I wrote the book specifically because he asked me to. I wasn't ever intending to write a, a full-length uh, pastiche, but uh, he wanted me to, and actually, I'm glad that he did. I I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, and this is a crossover where we actually bump into Conan Doyle, do we? Well, let's say there's a character in there who who may remind you of Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> I, I tried to not incorporate just just. In fact, I did not did not incorporate. You know. In, in whole, any real people. What I tried to do was to write a story that Arthur Conan Doyle might have written. So I made it the same length as the first two canonical novels. I came up with a title that I thought was a, a, a title pattern that seemed similar to the, to the four canonical novels. Uh, I, I didn't introduce any any you know, previously unknown deep dark secrets or backstory about Holmes and Watson. It, it's it's not a crime that involves major international intrigue. Uh, I just did my best to make it to make it uh, very familiar. It involves a familiar motive. Uh, there's an American backstory, as there is in so many of the, the canonical stories. Uh, there's a young woman in peril. Uh, there are a number of other gothic elements. Uh, Holmes is absent for a chunk of the novel, just as he is in the four canonical novels. And, of course, he gives Watson an assignment, and then when he unexpectedly comes back onto the scene again, he criticizes Watson for not being Sherlock Holmes because he didn't do as good a job as Holmes would. So, uh, you know, that's a familiar pattern uh, in the story. And also, uh, Holmes and Watson engage in a spot of burglary in this story, as they did in so many of the canonical tales. And it all begins, of course, on Baker Street. And in fact, it begins on the day of Queen Victoria's funeral. And it's a sad day, and also Holmes already senses that it's the end of an era. And they can, they can hear it, it's somewhat symbolized by the fact that they can hear the guns going off, the salute mm-hmm. to the Queen. Yeah. Now, Dan, one of the, uh, well, there's two other ways that you and I uh, know each other. And one is through our uh, particular fondness for bow ties, <laughs> uh, and the other yeah, is... Yeah, I, I, I keep threatening to start a Sherlockian science society called His Last Bow. <laughs> oh, that's very good. <laughs> you should. Ray Betzner would be I, there, Ray, Steve Ray, Rothman. I, Ray oh, Betzner? I, 
I joined that. Yeah. Don has been. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's work on this. I, I'd like that. It's so, a, you, it's a you noble actually, project. You have founded another Sherlockian society. Uh, you want to want to tell us about that? Well, I, I guess I can claim uh, uh, co-founding, although uh, my very good friend. Uh, Anne Margaret Lewis uh, did the, really the heavy lifting on it. It's called the Vatican Cameos, and it's a Sherlock Holmes official Scion Society of the Baker Street Irregulars uh, that is for Catholic Sherlockians. Uh, one of our members, who is the superintendent of one of the largest Catholic school uh, districts in the uh, United States, coined the term Catholicians. So the, the Vatican Cameos is a group for uh, Catholicians. And, of course, the, the, uh, the title comes from one of the untold tales of Sherlock Holmes. In The Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, we find Holmes saying, I was exceedingly preoccupied by that little affair of the Vatican Cameos, and in my anxiety to oblige the Pope, I lost touch with several interesting English cases. And then in uh, Black Peter, you may recall, reference to, excuse me, his famous investigation of the death of Cardinal Tosca, an inquiry which was carried out by him at the expressed desire of His Holiness the Pope. Well, the Pope in both of those time periods was the same man, Pope Leo Thirteenth, And so he's the only person that we know for sure was a client of Sherlock Holmes twice. And so whenever we get together, which is usually at, uh, you know, some larger gathering, a Scion Society meeting, where there happen to be a couple of, of uh, Vatican cameos present, we do a toast to Pope Leo XIII. And that's really about our only activity, other than we have a, a, web, a, a Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> well, that fellowship, you know, is very important. Now, have, have well, any of your... Our, our, our... Go ahead. Our uh, our spiritual director in heaven is Monsignor Ronald Knox, as you might imagine. That's a good one to have. Yeah. Now, have any of your Sherlockian essays included, or, or perhaps any of the, the, the work you did professionally, included um, references to Sherlock Holmes and Catholicism? <clears throat> yeah, I wrote a piece uh, for National Catholic Register exploring that whole sometimes rather contentious issue of uh, the religion of Sherlock Holmes. And I just don't think that you can, can escape the reality that the, the, the multiple quotes attest to the idea that Sherlock Holmes did believe in God in some way, shape, or form. I do not believe that Sherlock Holmes was Catholic, but I think he would have been a good one. <laughs> I think, you know, there are just so many very interesting uh, examples. Uh, like, well, a great passage, you know, at the end of the, uh, his last bow, when he talks about it's, it's God's own win nonetheless. And you can say he was just saying that as an example or a, or a, or a figure of speech, but, you know, in the, in the, the um, cardboard box, when, when, when he gives out, you know, this great creed de corps, you know, what is the meaning of it all, Watson? And he says, it's got to, to uh, have some, some end or else the universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. Now, if Holmes thinks that the universe is not ruled by chance, that, that has to mean that he has some concept of a, of, a, of a supreme being. Maybe somewhat unconventional. We don't know that much. But, but I do think that, that Sherlock Holmes was not an atheist, although many people think that he was because he was such a rational person. But uh, those two things are not, not in conflict. And I wrote, a, a, as I said, an article that was published in National Catholic Register about that. Oh, that's fantastic. And what was the response like? Well, the the uh, article was shared uh, on Facebook, and uh, there was a mostly positive response. Maybe the people who disagreed were just uh, being polite. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it just didn't make their, its way to people who disagree. Yeah, yeah. So what's it's next? certainly something that we can never definitively establish because you, you certainly can't 
uh, ascribe Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, religious beliefs to Sherlock Holmes because, as Conan Doyle said, the doll and its maker are never identical. True. So you wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. That is true. And, and of course, we know Conan Doyle had a complicated relationship with uh, Catholicism over the course of his life as well. He did. And I think complicated is a very good good answer, a good uh, description, because, he, you know, he abandoned the Catholic Church and conventional Christianity at a very young age, but it, it was really very interesting. Uh, when he was running for, for Parliament and accused of being a Roman Catholic. In his response, when he could have used it as an opportunity to attack the Church, said that that even though I left the Church as an early man, I have nothing but respect for that fine old institution. Words to that effect. I thought that was really interesting, that he would would uh, go out of his way to say that at a time that he was being uh, attacked for, for his Catholic roots. Mm. So I think that he... He, at some points in his his life, had a very um, bitter attitude toward the church, but I think that that mellowed out uh, later. He became a very good friend of a a cousin of his, uh, Father Barry Doyle, uh, who was a Roman Catholic priest. Well, I think he was more bitter about his Jesuitical experience. Than, oh yeah, uh, definitely Catholicism. Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he had said that somewhere, that the, that the Jesuits turned him against the church. I, I, obviously, that's oversimplistic. And he, you know, he was quite a principle. The, the hallmark of, I think, his religious beliefs are, uh, you know, it seemed, what seems to me to be a very strong arc of, of principle. I remember in his memoir, I think, in Memories and Adventures somewhere, he recounts that when he established his medical practice in South Sea, he received a letter of introduction from family members who were well-connected with the church and uh, other parts of the country. And this would be a great ticket for him. All he would need to do is sort of to take this letter of introduction to the local uh, clergy and so on. And he refused to do it because of uh, his own disagreements at that particular time. Hmm. Yeah, I've often asked myself whether I would actually like Arthur Conan Doyle. And I'm not <laughs> sure that I would, but I am sure that I would respect him a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, well, you know that is a very interesting statement. I don't know that I would li- I would like Arthur Conan Doyle either, but I'll tell you something: it would be at least one great dinner. <laughs> you can invite Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that would be two great dinners. <laughs> oh well, what's next? Well, he was a remarkable man. He, he was, and indeed. I I think that. Uh, Anybody who tries to walk in his footsteps in, in writing a Sherlock Holmes story faces a, a really steep challenge. And, and to think that, that these were things that he basically just dashed off. And, and of course, they have, they, they have problems in them, things that don't make sense if you, don't, if, if you think about it too long. But, but that's actually the, 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 the highest tribute is that, that – you love them anyway. <laughs> they, they, these stories transcend their flaws. They're mm. they're they're uh, greater than the the individual parts. Yeah, that is remarkable. And your, your point, Dan, that you know he he dashed them off, and and here we have uh, authors that are trying to uh, reclaim that magic, or uh, you know, kind of position themselves as the voice, you know, or contain the same voice that. Uh, Conan Doyle did through Watson, and uh, to him it was natural. And and to those of us who are trying to become Conan Doyle, uh, it's quite difficult. Well, taking this back almost full circle to Paul Herbert again, I remember a very early conversation I had with him, maybe in the Jesuit residence uh, dining hall, uh, in which I said, you know, I and maybe because I was a writer, I said, I'm not, I'm not all that thrilled about this game thing, you know, where you, you, you don't honor the writer. You, you, know, you, you assume that Dr. Watson wrote these stories and you don't honor the, the, the great genius of Arthur Conan Doyle. And, and Paul's response was along the lines of, I think that's the greatest tribute possible, that people think that your characters that you created are real. So what's next for you, Dan? 
Well, I just finished uh, writing the first draft of a chapter for a book that's going to be published by the Baker Street Irregulars. I just yesterday saw the cover of the next uh, McCabe Cody book, which is uh, finished in, I guess you'd say, second or third draft form. So I, I need to, to complete the work on that book, which is called Death Mask. It involves uh, murder at an opera, and the opera involves uh, a Mardi Gras party. So the cover of it is very, very colorful and has two different versions of a mask of Baron Samedi. It's, uh, it's pretty scary. So I've got to work on that book. Uh, I'm going to be talking at a meeting of Hugo's Companions in May. I'm going to be talking at the Red Circle in June. I've got another publisher considering a non-Sherlockian novel, another mystery I wrote a long time ago, and I've done some new work on it. And importantly, I'm working on getting good speakers for Holmes Doyle and Friends 6, the uh, famous uh, Dayton Symposium, which is, uh, has undergone new life under the administrations of the agri-treasurers, the Science Society in Dayton. And I'm a member of the Treasurers, and uh, I volunteered uh, last year to take on uh, the task of contacting potential speakers. And we just had a, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, symposium a few weeks ago, and I'm already looking to, to getting a group of great speakers again for next year. Wow. Well done. So uh, Thank you. You're, you're, you're clearly uh, not busy enough, Dan. <laughs> need to find a hobby. You have something else for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you come over and sort my bow ties? <laughs> I don't have that much time. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Well, Dan Andriaco, this was a an absolute pleasure, learning about the many facets of your life and your Sherlockian interests and your writing. Uh, and I hope folks get the chance to uh, check out your site, uh, we'll have links there in the show notes to Baker Street Beat, as well as uh, Facebook pages and uh, books and all the things you can find out about Dan and purchase. So, Dan, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. How good it is to talk to Dan. You know, it's interesting. So many people, when they first connect with Sherlock Holmes, develop an appreciation for the cases of Sherlock Holmes, develop an affinity for that wonderful milieu, the 19th century, 1895. So many find themselves prompted to want to continue the stories. And in fact, the earliest, I suppose, most successful, most prolific pastiche writer in his fashion was August Derleth with the Solar Ponds stories, who just really changed the name of the characters and then, in his own fashion, um, kept imagining, you know, their their inventions and their interactions. But Dan has such a wonderful body of work, and he's been able to parlay his writing skill and his interest in history um, into some very interesting uh, examples, possibilities for Holmes and Watson, like House of the Doomed. So it was, nice. it was very good to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, given his creative streak and his ease with the written word, it's clear that Dan will be at it for some time to come. So if you are uh, in... Uh, the D.C. Baltimore area this summer, if you are perhaps in New York next January or next March in Dayton, Ohio, plan to see Dan wandering around from table to table with his bow tie. <laughs> his last bow. I love that. I love That's that, too. It's a, it's a lot more useful than my other prior idea about violin-related accoutrement. <laughs> Very few people can get away with that.
When you first heard the name of the Baker Street Journal, what was your reaction? Be honest. Did you think someone meant to say the Wall Street Journal? Or maybe you thought it was a chronicle of Jerry Rafferty's challenges in creating his iconic song. Or perhaps some lurid details of John Three Continents Watson and his romantic conquests for which the world is not yet prepared. Well, all of those are wrong on a number of levels. Now, the Baker Street Journal is simply a place to find some of the world's leading Sherlockian scholarship. And out of the stuck-up, hard-to-understand variety, now, these are articles that are by turn entertaining, informative, and thought-provoking. Just the kind of thing you'd expect to hear from other Sherlockians. And Jerry Rafferty. Isn't it time that you added a subscription to the BSJ to your shopping list? We think so. Just head over to BakerStreetJournal.com and add your name to our list today. And on that note, you know, coming out of the Baker Street Journal, the latest and greatest in Sherlockian scholarship, it made me realize that there have been some recent goings-on that you may have read of over on I Hear of Sherlock everywhere.com, our website. Uh, In particular, uh, there has been a launch of a new website called Crime Reads. I was notified about this by Otto Penzler, who actually is on the board there. I don't know if you read a site called Lit Hub, Literary Hub. It kind of does a roundup of uh, some of the interesting stories, long reads, books, etc., in the literary world. Well, Crime Reads does the exact same thing. It's a pretty interesting site. It's got uh, all kinds of crime genre uh, available from mystery to hard-boiled to suspense and thriller and uh, you name it. Uh, Looking at TV and film and just the craft of writing. There's essays, interviews, etc. Really fascinating site. Uh, Anyway, we've got uh, a story about that on the website and If you just happen to see the most recent episode of Family Guy, you're a regular uh, viewer of Family Guy, right, Bert? I never miss an episode. (laughs) Well, it was um, episode 13 of uh, the 16th season. Uh, It was titled V is for Mystery, and uh, it's a parody of Sherlock Holmes. Stewie and Brian uh, star as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in pursuit of, you guessed it, Professor Moriarty. Uh, Well worth checking out. We have a few of the screenshots there on the site and a quick write-up about it. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, please do so. Well, without further ado, you are probably wondering all about the canonical couplet. It is that time. It is the time when you, you, a supporter of the show, because you have generously given to us over PayPal or Patreon this year, uh, you are a regular contributor to the show, and we appreciate your support because that keeps the lights on and the, the email squirrels running and all the things that we do to make this possible. So we want to return the favor, and if you answer this correctly, if you're the first one, We will send you a Sherlockian prize. We will try to make it relevant to you and your interests. Um, We can't promise we're going to hit it spot on, but hey, we'll give it a shot. So all you have to do is identify the canonical story from which this couplet represents or is taken. And here is the couplet. Actors and journalists, this story states can bring to begging certain basic traits. If you think you know the story that that represents, jot it down on a $20 bill and send it in. No, wait. Uh, send us an email. Comment at IHearOfSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the header, in the subject line. And let us know. And if you are the first one to answer correctly and you support the show, the prize is yours. Good luck. 
Well, have we have we done it again? I think we have probably done it again, yes. It's amazing. Well, I guess that uh, until we meet next time with another mystery guest, <laughs> I will remain Scott Monty. Yes, and I'm stuck in Burt Wolder. Oh, don't say that. We love you just the way you are. <laughs> the game's afoot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 